All right, praise the Lord. Good morning. Praise the Lord. And I'll reiterate what Jason said. I just appreciate so many in the church, uh, the worship team, um, last night leading everybody in worship. How many realize how important that is to have that community worship night? And uh, we're going to keep on doing it. And uh, I just appreciate their faithfulness and uh, the rotation back and forth to both building so many people, you know, that are pitching in and filling in different places, and they just do it seamlessly. I've been very amazed how wonderful they've done with the worship. Praise the Lord. And um, also, I want to remind you, too, that um, I actually listen to the sermons usually on an app called Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and it's an app you can um, download on um, your iPhone or Android device and uh, you can listen to the sermons on there you can listen to it on Spotify uh, you can listen to it on YouTube or Facebook and uh, remember um, what it's going to look for on all those areas even the uh, tithing app is uh, Wellspring Community Worship Center so as soon as you put Wellspring Community you should see the logo on there and you should be able to find them online and uh, something I also am very excited about we're real close in the next uh, couple of weeks here to um, releasing our new website, which is going to have everything incorporated in one location. And um, so it'll be a very nice website. We've had a professional uh, company really spend a lot of uh, time, you know, designing it and making sure both campuses are incorporated. So be on the lookout for that in the next couple of weeks. We'll be uh, releasing that real soon. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we've been doing a series of messages. This is the eighth message in the books of uh, Thessalonians. And uh, so we went through the book of First Thessalonians, and now we're in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. It's three chapters long, and uh, this is the eighth message in that series on Thessalonians. Now, we called the entire series the Return Mail because it is a very early letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, to the church, and uh, this is written basically about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so a very early letter in the church, and uh, Paul is laying foundations for new believers who are new in the Lord, and the majority of this church were uh, pagan, uh, uh, they lived a pagan lifestyle previous to coming to the Lord. And so they really had not a great deal of background and uh, were new in the Lord. And he'd only been there maybe three weeks, uh, three weeks at a minimum and maybe a little longer. And uh, so he wasn't there a great deal of time, but he put a lot of time into making sure he taught them the basics. If you had a month to spend with new believers and you taught them day and night, what would you teach them? And so we get an insight into what Paul thought was important for new believers uh, to be learning and for the church to learn and practice. So let's read this together. It says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. So he's giving you an insight at the beginning of this chapter that this is going to be concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering, our being gathered to Him. So two different items there, not the same one. He didn't say they were the same item. He said one and the other. 
we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly coming from us, whether it was by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord had already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, which is the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man who is doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is some pretty heavy stuff, if we, if we really listen to what he's saying here. It says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. Now, isn't this amazing that Paul has a short period of time with new believers who don't have a background in the Bible, and he's teaching prophecy about the Antichrist and about the coming day of the Lord, which is the tribulation that's going to come upon the earth. Um, would you do that? Would you teach something that we consider today? Uh, a lot of people consider that kind of advanced, don't they? They're like, well, man, I don't know if I want to tell new believers yet about the Antichrist and the tribulation. and and uh, But you see, he's doing this right away. And that's what he, a lot of his conversation when he was with them was about this. And this is their specific question. So let me go on. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back. This is that man that he was talking about that called himself God. So that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays. Now listen to this. Satan will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. In all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so they will be condemned who have not believed the truth and delighted in their wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through the, our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, hold fast to the teachings that were passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak your word through me. Hide me. Lord, let it be yours and not mine. Lord God, let you be seen and not me, Lord. 
Help me today, Holy Spirit. Speak your word to every heart. Give us ears to hear, Lord. And uh, not only to hear, but to act in accordance with the word, Lord. Your word. Be obedient to it, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. All right, so Paul is very clearly here. And I'm just going through the Bible uh, just teaching background, going through the book, and just making sure everybody understands um, that this is critical information that Paul deemed at the very beginning of his ministry to be something that he needed to minister immediately. And how many understand that the understanding of the last things are critical for us to understand today? And based on our understanding of the Bible... And Paul's teaching people that just became believers, he's teaching them about these things because he knows it's critical. And we don't have a whole lot of good information out there on these simple things. In fact, a lot of people that go to church every Sunday have never been taught on these basic fundamental things about the last days. And so it's very critical that uh, when we're here today, that we listen very carefully Because our entire eternal destiny is hanging in the balance today. How many understand that? That this is a solemn assembly and only a few people recognize that. How many realize that this is a solemn assembly? It's been called by God and we have to act. And you say, well, man, I'm not going to act on it. Everybody has to understand that you will always act on the information that's presented. There's no in-between ground. There's either one or the other. There's one side of the fence or the other. We'll always react to the, in in some way to the message that's being received. And so we want to act in the appropriate way, the way God hopes us to act and, and the way that the Bible wants us to act. God is not willing that anybody should perish, but all should have everlasting life. But like I said last week, that there's wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to life. Few there be that find it, and that's just the reality of the gospel. And so we need to be that few that find it and understand that God doesn't want any of us to perish, okay? And it says, now brethren, this is verse 1 and 2, now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by prophecy or by word or by letter, as if it was from us, as though the day of Christ or the day of the Lord had come. So this is a church that he's trying to encourage them not to be troubled. Okay, and so we have to figure out what is troubling this church. What's got them so upset? And... um They're upset because they believe, and it may have been all three or it may have been one or the other, um, somebody either gave a prophecy in church. All right, everybody see that there? Whether it's by prophecy or by word or by a letter. Okay, and they think that maybe all three of those things happened, that maybe they were in church and somebody during a normal service, it's normal to have a prophetic word that is a, a gift of the Spirit for the church. How many know that? 
It's for encouragement, it's for reproving, it's for all types of real beneficial things, a prophetic word. And the reason they think that this may have happened in this body was because Paul told them at the end of 1 Thessalonians, uh, do not despise prophecy. Do not forbid prophecy. And the reason he's saying that is because prophecy is a good thing, but in this case, somebody presented a word of prophecy that was incorrect. And so he's saying you heard something very possibly from what I'm hearing from a word of prophecy or by word of mouth, which means there are people that were going around in that city. Sometimes, how many know sometimes it's it's just honest? Somebody doesn't really know the word that well and they think they know the word that well and they're teaching something by word that isn't correct. It's a miscommunication of what Paul had taught them. So somebody by word may have done it. Or the other thing is, uh, Paul actually says, look that I'm writing this letter, see my signature. And so somebody had actually written a letter uh, saying that it was from Paul. And Paul didn't actually write the letter, and so people were thinking that a letter came from Paul. Explain to them, well, here's the thing that troubled them. Paul in 1 Thessalonians, after the end of every chapter, I told you that he's talking about the return of the Lord. In fact, in chapter 1... Verse 9, it says, You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And every chapter He ends with, Jesus Christ is coming to us, and the expectation of this group of people was, that there's going to come a time that is called the tribulation. It's the uh, seven-year tribulation. And they were understanding from Paul that when the Lord returns suddenly, unexpectedly, without any sign, that we are going to escape. In fact, Jesus said it in Luke 21, that we are going to escape the wrath to come. And every time that escape or that rescue is presented... It's protecting us from the seven-year period where Jesus said it's going to be a period of tribulation that's greater than any tribulation that's ever came on the earth. How many know there have been terrible earthquakes in the history of the world? But there'll never be earthquakes like there are in this seven-year period. The ones that you hear about, the massive earthquakes, when you hear... um Massive earthquakes and certain fault lines, and if they were to ever blow... How many have ever seen stories like this? If that fault line would ever blow, this would be the most massive thing the United States has ever seen. And all around the world, there's these fault lines that they say are ticking time bombs. And how many know we've had terrible earthquakes, but we'll never have a series of earthquakes like we have in this seven-year period? We've had lawlessness in the world. There have been periods of time in history where it's been a bloodbath. How many know that? There have been a bloodbath of wars. There have been a bloodbath of of um, um, different ethnic groups fighting different ethnic groups. There have been world wars. There have been all these things in history. But Jesus confirms there will never be wars and bloodbaths like there are during this period. The earth will be in extreme turmoil. And so there's a period of time where Jesus says there'll be tribulation that will come upon the earth that's beyond anything we've seen. How many know there have been persecution of believers uh, to a terrible extent all around the world in this century? 
There have been, there are places today where more people, in fact, more people have been martyred, they say, in this century than any of the other centuries in the history of the church. But this is not what he's talking about. In fact, it's very important that we understand this because a lot of people that teach this, they say, well, man, why are we so special to be rescued from the seven-year tribulation when there's tribulation from the beginning of the church until now and they didn't escape it? And this is where we have to understand that there is a general tribulation that the Bible teaches, meaning you could lose your life for being a Christian. Does everybody understand that? In a lot of parts of the world, there's a persecution so heavy, you could easily lose your life, your family could lose their life, the church could be persecuted at any moment in this world. We're going to experience tribulation in this world, but they're never talking about the general tribulation that the church has always experienced. Jesus specifically says that tribulation that's coming upon the earth is going to be worse than any the earth has ever experienced. And he said, you can escape that. And he expects us to escape that if we're obedient. And you say, well, I don't want to. It doesn't matter whether you want to or you don't want to. He offers that rescue, that escape from the wrath to come. And it's always specifically talking about that special tribulation period where he wants to rescue the church. He wants to pull the church out of there because he has plans for that seven-year period. How many understand that? The very basic doctrine we really need to understand. So this is what he's expounding here. They were expecting, because they didn't know anything else about the Bible, they were fully expecting. In fact, all the information they had was they had learned about what Jesus had taught. Jesus had taught in John chapter 14. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in me and trust in God. Where I go, you will go also. He said, where I go, he said, I, I, my, he says, where I'm going has many rooms, many mansions, many places are being prepared for you in heaven. And where I go, I will come to you and I will gather you together and take you with me to heaven. They knew that. They had the, the church taught the, the, what's called the Olivet Discourse before Jesus uh, died, he took all of his disciples together and in that Olivet Discourse, he began to explain that I'm going to take you to myself, I'm going to gather you together, and we're actually going to heaven together. I'm going to gather you together. And, and then Paul began to um, expound on this. One of the first teachings that he had to this very early church, just 15 years after Christ said it, Paul is teaching, hey, in the moment, uh, he, he said in Thessalonians, he said with the shout, in fact, let me read it. It says, for the Lord himself, nobody's with him. He's just descending by himself. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, snatched with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort yourself with these words. How many know that they were expecting the Lord, just like he said in John 14, to come gather together and take them to heaven? Okay, and then we begin to look. Paul now says, hey, I want to stress. 
In this first verse, he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together. In fact, um, one commentator says this shows the government of two nouns under one article that makes it clear this is one event uh, viewed under two complementary aspects that are thought of here. So there are two different events. One is the gathering and one is the coming of the Lord at the end of the seven-year period. So Paul's stressing that there are two events here. And so the gathering together was what Jesus referred to. And then um, the coming of the Lord, technically, he comes at the end of the seven-year period. Does everybody follow me on this? And so Paul is stressing, and here's where the troubling part came for the Thess- Thessalonians. Somebody had told them by prophecy, by word, and by letter that the tribulation that they spoke of that's going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen is here now. He said, we're presently in it is what they thought. So they were thinking to themselves, well, look, we're being persecuted so heavily in this town. You know, some of them were being martyred. Some of them were being beaten. There was an incredible tribulation, which is that general tribulation that's been present since the time Jesus uh, was resurrected. His disciples were all beaten and they were all, mostly all of them were martyred. And so they thought, well, man, this makes sense. We're in that special period called the tribulation and they're confused. They're troubled. They have anxiety. In fact, the term he uses there, he says, don't be soon shaken in mind or troubled. And that actually is a term that is very similar to a ship that is in the middle of a storm in the ocean. I mean, oh, there are a lot of mutinies that have happened out to sea when that storm hits and everybody's confused and everybody's upset. And so here is this church. They're being told that the tribulation is here and there's only one reason, church, that that would trouble them and upset them because they miss the rapture of the Lord. If they had been not been taught that there was a rapture, they would just lock in and say, well, we're, it's, it's counting down now. Seven more years, the Lord's going to come back and we've just got to endure this. But they were confused. They were upset because Paul had taught them that God is going to gather to you together and he's going to, you're going to escape the wrath that is coming in this great tribulation. And so they were confused. They were upset. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to be upset. I'm going to give you information about the rapture and the tribulation that's coming upon the earth. And so one thing you need to understand is there is a difference between the coming of the Lord at the rapture and the coming of the Lord at the end of the seven-year tribulation. How many know this and understand this? The rapture... In fact, I wrote a few things down here. The rapture, Jesus will return for his saints. How many understand that teaching in the Bible? At the rapture, he's returning for those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain who are in Christ. He's coming for his saints. And it says at the trumpet blast, they will be caught up or snatched to be with him in the air. So he's coming for his saints. Now when he comes back at the end of the seven year period, guess who's with him? In fact, Jude says he comes with ten thousands of angels that are with him. 
And it says that we're actually with him when he returns at the end of the seven years. So how many know that he captures us up before the tribulation, before all these terrible things that are happening to the world, we're caught up with him in the air, we're going to that place he's prepared for us, we'll never leave his side after that. Then after the seven year period, he comes to set his kingdom, he comes as a king, and we're with him in ten thousands of angels. But at the rapture, how many know he's himself alone is coming to gather us in the sky to take us to heaven? After the seven years, we're with him. Two different events, church. And we need to understand this, and it's what Paul is trying to expound, is there's two different events here. There's a without notice, suddenly, without any expectation, thief in the night, God is going to come, he's going to gather his saints, and we're out of here. And then at the end of the seven-year period, we come with him to set up his kingdom on this earth. And that is when he comes to judge unbelievers. It's a whole different coming. Let me give you a few other differences. <clears throat> At the rapture, Jesus does not descend onto the earth. How many know that? It says he's in the clouds and he's gathering us up to him, Paul said. So he's in the clouds, he's gathering us up to him, and he's going up to heaven. At the end of the seven-year tribulation, after all these terrible things have happened upon the earth and we come with him, it says he lands um, in Jerusalem there at the Mount of Olives, and, the, and actually the, it actually splits in half at a great earthquake when he lands on the ground. And so how many know he actually touches the earth seven years later? It's not the same event, church. <clears throat> Another thing, at the rapture, Jesus is coming to bless his saints. At the second coming, Jesus is coming to bring judgment to those who have rejected him. How many know that difference? Big difference, right? He's coming to bless us, but at the end of the seven year, he's coming to bring judgment. Uh, The rapture could occur at any moment and is expected to be a signless event. But the second coming, you can actually count the days when it happens because there are more signs than the earth has ever seen happening on the earth. In fact, we know the exact day that he will come in the second coming. The rapture, we have no idea when he'll come in here. And so Paul is trying to stress to them, there is a gathering of yourselves together to him, and there's also a second coming. And so he's trying to ease their troubled minds and he's trying to say, here's how you know that the seven-year tribulation is not here. How many would like to know that? Because there are a lot of people that are confused about when the tribulation is going to happen, what it's going to look like. And so Paul gives three signs that you will know that the rapture actually has occurred. And when you see these three signs, you know you're in it, all right? You know that the rapture has begun, and Paul is basically telling them, because they won't be there when it happens if they're right with the Lord. But he's saying, had the tribulation happened, you would have seen these three things. And so he gives you three things that you need to watch for, because when the day of the Lord comes, Jesus said it will come like a trap. How many remember when I preached that a few weeks ago? Jesus said it will come like a trap 
the seven year tribulation on the earth. And at the time that it comes, there's no getting out of it. In fact, he gives the imagery of a woman who is actually, her water is broken and she's in full labor and she's going to give birth. There's no turning back. How many know that? There's no turning back when she's in full labor. And when the day of the Lord starts, um, it will not stop. It can't be held back. You can't get out of it. You're in the middle of it. So Jesus is saying, be ready, be prepared, watch, be on guard, be sober-minded, keep your eyes open, because when the rapture happens, it will be suddenly, it'll be without notice. And then after the church is removed, we got a whole different environment now, and you can't get out of it. There's no way to get out of it. It's like a trap has been set on the world and you're in the middle of the rapture that has been prophesied about since the very beginning. How many know this to be the case? And so church, we need to understand this. So here are the three things that Paul mentions in Thessalonians so they'll understand that you're in the middle of that period. Number one, he said, don't let anyone deceive you. This is Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Now, when you hear what that, what's that tell you? There's going to be lots of deception. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way because there will be lots of deception around this. For that day will not come until... So this is the day of the Lord. This is not the rapture, church. We're going to stress this, okay? This is not the rapture. This is the day of the Lord, which is the seven-year tribulation, which the Bible, we have to know all about the seven. That's the whole book of Revelations about that seven-year period. But that seven-year period will not come until the rebellion occurs. That's the first one. The man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the second one. The man doomed to destruction, he'll oppose God, exalt himself over everything that's called God and his worship, and he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's a pretty noticeable thing. <clears throat> so let me go with the first two here, and then I'll get to the third one. But the first one is, until the great apostasy, some of your your Bibles say the apostasy, the great apostasy, or the rebellion, or the great rebellion, okay? And so this great rebellion has to happen before the seven-year period commences. Now here's one of the errors that a lot of people make, and it's just an error of not really paying attention to details, but a lot of people think that the rapture happens, and then what is happening the next day? Seven-year tribulation. How many thought that? I'm not saying it's wrong. It could happen that way. But there's nothing biblically that says the rapture happens and the seven-year period starts immediately. So you need to really remember that. It's very important. Because the rapture will happen... And then there must be the great rebellion that happens after that. The great apostasy, the great falling away, the great departure. And so here's what you need to know about the seven-year period. And I mentioned it a few weeks ago. It does not start until the Antichrist, that's how you'll know, and that is the moment he's revealed, he'll be alive, he'll be doing work, He'll be the seal will be broken, and he'll go forth to do his work. 
But the actual seven-year tribulation does not start until he signs a contract of peace protecting Israel and a six-year peace covenant with Israel. How many know that is the fact? So remember, he is not revealed, and the seven-year period, according to Daniel, does not start until he signs the contract. And so this is how we'll know who he is. The Bible makes it very clear, it's very noticeable who he is, but unless the Antichrist is sitting with the Prime Minister of Israel, signing the contract, and at that moment the church is raptured, right, it could happen, It could happen that they're signing the contract and halfway through his name, pow, the church is removed from the earth. That very well could happen. But there's nothing biblically says that that's how it happens. Okay, most likely what will happen is there will be a rapture of believers on the church, from the church will be gone. And now I want you to start thinking here. In fact, I love to read the Bible. How many read the Bible and just think? Think, man, how will this play out? How is this going to play out? Okay, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Nobody knows what the truth is. We all try to find the truth. We try to find information. How many know something amiss is in the air right now? Now let's start thinking if the Lord will return in our generation, which every generation must think this way. If the Lord returned right now, what would happen to the earth if there were no Christians or true believers in the world? In fact, I did a series of messages last year. You can find them in the archives. It's called The Coming Antichrist Kingdom. And so you need to begin to think if the Lord were to return suddenly and remove all true believers from the earth, how would the Antichrist fulfill these prophecies And it's very easy to see one direct path. How many know the UN would like to divide the earth into 10 economic regions right now? That's been their plan for a long time. They'd like North America to be an economic region. They'd like the Middle East to be an economic region. They'd like Europe to be an economic region, Asia to be an economic region. And they'd like to balance the wealth of the world among those regions And how many know there's already a plan to have 10 regions economically? In fact, go back to those sermons and I spend a lot of time on how it would play out in these prophecies if the Lord came back today. But how many know if there were no Christians in the world? In fact, I've read so many books from the, how many have read books from the World Economic Forum? I mean, there are books out there about exactly what they want to do. Okay, and if you were to not have a Christian in this world, how many know they could do exactly what they want to do? The UN can do exactly what they want to do. Every liberal um, politician can do exactly what they want to do. And why am I saying this? The reason I'm saying this is because the moment the church is removed, we're in heaven, and in Revelation it says that we're watching. John is crying. He says, who can open the seven seals and, and, and bring the final judgment on the earth and God to restore His kingdom and restore the earth the way Jesus Christ wanted it to be? We have to have that seven-year period because that's the setting up of Christ's kingdom. After the Antichrist sets His kingdom up, then it says Jesus Christ destroys His kingdom and sets His kingdom up. It's the final rebellion. Of the wicked. 
That's what the seven-year period is. And so that first seal is broken, and there's a multitude in heaven, and that is the church. And the church watches that first seal be broken, and, and you open it up, and that's all the judgments of Revelation. And guess what that first seal is? The Antichrist moves forth to begin to do his work. In fact, he, the Bible says that he would have no success while the church was there, but when the church is removed, it says that he will have success and he will overcome the saints at that point. He can't overcome them, but when the church is gone, then it says the Antichrist will overcome the saints. And in order to give your testimony and live for the Lord, you have to give your life. And so the Antichrist goes forth, but he still hasn't signed the agreement. Still hasn't signed the agreement, but it says the great rebellion has to happen. Now, a lot of people say the great apostasy is uh, the church uh, generally is just turning away from Christ. Well, the church isn't going to be there. So it's not the church turning away from Christ. Um, the great rebellion very clearly is the world has always wanted a world without God, and this is their moment. We're going to create a world without God. We're going to get rid of crime. We're going to get rid of all this stuff. And they're going to set up a kingdom without God, which is what uh, secular humanists have wanted for, for eons of time. And so the great rebellion is we want a world without God. And so they begin to set up this great rebellion. In fact, if you go through the Bible and you follow uh, the history of the great rebellion, it starts with Cain. How many have ever noticed the Cain rebellion against God? Abel went one way, Cain went a different way, and Cain decided he wanted to live his life without God and built his own cities and became a great person. God had to wipe out the entire civilization because everybody became so wicked through the line of Cain. In fact, Noah uh, repopulates the earth, and not too long after Noah repopulates the earth, what happens? The first great rebellion, which is the Bible's example for what's going to happen in Revelation. It's called Babylon. They built the Tower of Babel, and great Nimrod said, I'm going to rebel against God. In fact, he became the great rebeller against God. He said, we can live life without God. In fact, did you know he built that tower? Because he was telling humanity that I'm going to build a tower so high that God can't flood us uh, and kill us again. And so all through history, in fact, God made nations so there could never be a great rebellion again. God created nations for that very purpose. And God said that that great rebellion will never happen again until the seven-year period before Christ comes to set up his kingdom. There will be one great rebellion, and that will be through the Antichrist, and it's going to happen in that seven-year period. And so he says that there's going to be a great rebellion that's going to happen. In fact, the whole world, if you're on this earth and you see the rapture of the church, guess what's going to happen to a lot of people? There are going to be a lot of people on the earth that are going to say, mom and dad was right. Those Christians were right. Those Christians, everything that they said was right. And you know, there are going to be a lot of people that are going to say, oh my goodness, what have I done? And, and, and Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus in the book of Revelation, how many of you know that he didn't leave us alone? He gave us a lot of scriptures to help us 
if we're left on the earth during that terrible time. In fact, he gives a way of salvation. And there are lots of people that actually get right with God because they realize that I messed up really bad. I mean, I just, and, and they're, they're trying to live for God, but they're in the middle of what's called the great rebellion. In fact, you see the first, from the time of the rapture until the first three and a half years, how many know that they're hunting down believers that are left on the earth like they're animals? You say, Chad, why are you preaching this? Paul thought it was important to preach to the new believers. There is a persecution of believers like has never been released on this earth. In fact, if you are a believer during the tribulation, you'll hide in the woods. You'll hide anywhere you can hide. You'll, at some point there in the seven year tribulation, you won't even be able to buy food. You know, you have to take a mark of the beast the Bible talks about. And so this period of tribulation, what a pleasant thing on a Sunday morning, right? But this great rebellion is one of the most underrated things in the Bible. People don't know anything about the great rebellion. The great rebellion is simply this. There's going to be a government set up around the entire world. And it's going to be in rebellion against God. And it is going to literally hunt down believers. And if you're a believer during that period of time, in fact, in Revelation, you see chapter after chapter, people that are dying for their faith, their heads are being chopped off, literally. They're literally being beheaded for their witness to Christ. And wave after wave you see entering heaven through um, martyrdom. And it's just, you know, waves of people. But then you say, wouldn't everybody get right with God? All through Revelation, there are other people that some are getting trying to get right with God, but there's a lot of other people that are getting more and more bitter and angry toward God. In fact, God puts all of those judgments on the earth and He says they still will not repent. No matter what God does in that seven-year period, there's scores and scores of people, they still will not repent. Even though God is pouring out His judgment in a way that He never has His wrath on the earth, God's still preaching the gospel and still trying to get them to repent, and they still won't repent. Isn't that amazing? And so God says there will be a great rebellion, and this rebellion is not just, it can't be just people are no longer teaching about God, or people are no longer being strong Christian, because how many know that's happened in every part of the church history? There's always been rebellion against God in the church. There's always been rebellion against the Word. There's always been churches that haven't uh, lived for God truly. This is a great rebellion of world epic proportions that's going to engulf the entire world. In fact, imagine our world right now without Christians. And that's the world you're going to have. Everything that is right, everything that is good, they're going to call evil. And everything that is evil, they're going to call good. And there won't be a single Christian to say anything different. So church, I'm just telling you, know this. A great rebellion will happen. The moment the church is removed, there will be a rebellion like nobody has ever seen and all of the people in authority will not be Christian people. It will be a terrible rebellion. So Paul says that has to come first. And you say, well, how does that happen? Because there is a rapture and there's a signing of an agreement and there's an indefinite period of time in between. Please understand that. There's a rapture, there's an agreement that's signed by the Antichrist, and in between we don't know that period of time. And so this Antichrist is released, there's a great rebellion, 
And then it says the second thing that has to happen. Isn't a Thessalonians a meaty book? Surprisingly meaty, right? Second thing. <clears throat> he says, and the man of sin is revealed. So there will be a man, in fact, Daniel calls him the prince who is to come, the king of fierce countenance, the willful king. This is the Antichrist. And so he says, had you been in the tribulation, you would have known because the Antichrist would be revealed. And so what are we looking for? We're looking for a great rebellion of worldwide epic proportions. And then we're looking for a man who's going to come onto the scene and he's going to be speaking nothing but peace. And it says through flattery and through his lips and through the way he talked, he's going to bring peace to the world. And like I said, if it happened in our lifetime, it's probably going to happen through something like the United Nations, which is an organization of peace. How many know that? And so this man of sin will be revealed And you'll know who he is because he will make a seven-year agreement with Israel to protect them. In fact, there's probably almost no way around it. Israel is probably going to be in a golden age. Whatever happens with Israel, and there's some things I suspect will happen, Israel will totally trust this man of peace. They will sign a seven-year agreement. They'll feel like they're protected by him. And when that happens, and the great rebellion, we're in the middle of it, and it's a worldwide rebellion against God, and the Christians are gone, you'll know you're in the tribulation. You're going to watch this play out, and you're going to say, how is the enemy so dumb? In fact, several places, God says, I said it, and look, they're doing exactly what I said. He's actually mocking the enemy, because they always fulfill Scripture. That's why the enemy is called a beast, by the way. How many know, if I have a dog... I can almost always predict that dog's behavior, and that dog, as smart as you think they are, he's always going to act like a dog. That cat, I can almost always predict the behavior of any animal because a beast will act like the nature of the beast. And every time Satan has been released in history, guess what he's tried to do? Tried to sit in the place of God. Tried to rule the world. Tried to be God in every possible way. And so this beast... Uh, this, this antichrist, this man of sin, the Bible says will be revealed. And Paul said, when you see this, you'll know you're in the tribulation. He will make an agreement with Israel. And get this. He has, did you notice in the verses there, it said that with signs and wonders? It says, um, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so he will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, 
so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth, destroy at the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance, listen to this, with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders, that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. He is going to come performing signs and wonders. In fact, before he sets him up, himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God, how many know that he uh, receives a fatal blow? How many have ever read that in Revelation? He receives a fatal blow. Does anybody know what the word fatal means? Dead comes back alive. Theologians can't explain what happened there because there's never been a miracle done uh, even in the courts of Pharaoh where they were doing signs and wonders. The, the theologians would say that the one thing Satan can never do is create life. And it didn't say that it was a fake fatal blow. It said there was a fatal blow and he came alive. And the whole world marveled because he was resurrected. Now, what did Jesus do? He's mimicking Jesus in every way. He's bringing peace to the world, which Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has a fatal blow. He comes back to life. He's performing signs and wonders where people are in awe. But he's a man of wickedness. He said lawlessness has always been in the world, and that spirit of lawlessness has always been at work. But when he comes along, all restraint for lawlessness is going to be gone because of him. Have you noticed the lawlessness that's in our world right now? Imagine when the restraint of the church and the Holy Spirit through the church is gone. You'll know you're in the tribulation because there'll be lawlessness like we've never seen. There'll be murder like we've never seen. There'll be wars like we've never seen. There'll be bloodshed like we've never seen in church. This is why it's so exciting that Jesus is going to return and snatch us out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm being as honest as I can. I've studied this Bible for 30 years. Day and night. And I've been as honest as I can be. We need to know about these three events. Alright? The re- great rebellion that's going to happen worldwide. Church is gone. Great rebellion. Man of sin is revealed. Lawlessness reaches a level like the world has never seen. And so the third thing is... That which restrains him will be taken out of the way. Something is standing in the door saying you can't enter. It's not your time yet. It's not your time. And it's uh, described as a neuter, which is a neutral um, noun, and it's also described as a, um, uh, as a he. So it's a he and it's also neutral. And as you begin to look at this word, it really comes very crystal clear. This can only be the Holy Spirit. But the Bible is very clear that God's going to pour out the Holy Spirit until that great day when the sun is darkened and the moon is darkened and the, and the sky rolls up like a scroll. The Holy Spirit is still going to be active during the whole tribulation. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit through the church of restraining sin, 
and restraining the Antichrist and that promise that Jesus gave the church is when I build my church, uh, the gates of hell can't prevail against you. When that church is gone, Revelation says now the um, the Antichrist has the ability to prevail. And so that which was restraining him, which is the church through the Holy Spirit, it's going to be removed. And when that is removed, you know you're in the tribulation because the Antichrist could not be revealed and could not do what he's going to do unless the church were revealed first and the Holy Spirit through the church. How many know this? So Paul is saying three things are going to happen. There's going to be a great rebellion. The man of sin is going to be revealed. And the restrainer that is holding back the the Antichrist is going to allow him to enter the stage. And um, so Paul goes through and he begins to stress this to the church. And he says... um, those who do not receive the love of the truth, these people are ready. No, hold on. Let me let me go back to the original verse here. <clears throat> it says, "And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth." Now, do you know what he's talking about here? He's saying that the Antichrist will be revealed. He'll be allowed to set up his kingdom for a seven-year period. And then even while, Daniel says, even while the Antichrist has set up his kingdom, God begins setting up his kingdom. And so this is the last great rebellion. And at the end of the seven-year period, it says Christ returns with his holy angels and with his saints, and he sets up his kingdom on the earth. And with the breath of his mouth, he destroys the Antichrist and his kingdom with just the breath of his mouth. And we're with him, and he's setting up his kingdom on earth, and um but he says during this period he says the um for this reason God sends oh I'm sorry it says he will use all sorts of power through signs and wonders to serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth and have delighted in their own wickedness. Church, let me be as serious as I can here. The Bible says, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Jesus Christ is telling us the truth, but we there's so many of us that won't believe the truth even to be saved from the tribulation. And then if we were to ever, God forbid, be in the tribulation, how many know there are still people that are seeing all these things come upon the earth and they're still believing the lie and not loving the truth? And so I want to close with this. And um, I really prayed about how to close this. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Paul has spent a lot of time explaining... What happens to the righteous? In fact, do you know if we were to die? The Bible says that if we are in Christ and we die, the angels will literally escort us to the presence of Christ. And we'll be in His presence awaiting that day when He returns 
And we'll either be the dead in Christ who will be resurrected with a new glorified body or we'll be alive on the earth and we'll go to meet Him in the air. And it's really exciting. It's what we live for. It's our hope. It's every day we should be thinking about that, comforting ourselves with that thought. But how many know we never tell the story of what happens to the other souls? How many have heard a sermon on that, what happens, what their journey is? Anybody ever heard a sermon on that? The journey of the souls that are unsaved. So I'm going to read you something here. It's Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate was a laid a beggar named Lazarus. This is Jesus telling the story, so we need to really pay attention to the story. Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell at the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked the sores of Lazarus. The time came when the beggar died and the angels, now listen to this, the beggar died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. It's called Abraham's bosom. It's in a place called Sheol. This is before Christ died and resurrected. In fact, um, before Christ's resurrection, this is, like I said, you're not going to hear this information anywhere else if you don't hear it at church. There was a place called Sheol. It was in the bowels of the earth, okay? We've heard about hell being in the bowels of the earth. The Bible specifically says there's a place called Sheol. There was nobody in the presence of Christ at this time. In the bowels of Sheol were two compartments. One compartment was called Hades or hell. The other department was called Abraham's bosom or by Abraham's side. And so people of faith, um, in fact, did you know that this story will tell you that they could actually see each other? They were looking up in that other compartment and they could see Abraham and everybody who were faithful. They were in that compartment, okay? And so in Sheol were two compartments. And so he, this is what Jesus is talking about here. Um, the beggar was named Lazarus. He was covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now let me stop here and I'm going to read the rest of this. But there is never a time where your soul is sleeping. The body will be laid in the dust and the body you know, could be so-called sleeping. But the, uh, the, the existence of your spirit is eternal. When you die, you will not have a moment of sleeping. You'll be always aware of what's happening. That's what this story is telling us. You'll always be an eternal creature with an eternal spirit. You will not be annihilated. You will not sleep. You'll be completely aware of what's happening. Okay, And this story illustrates it. It says, um, The rich man died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. This is Jesus telling the story. He was in hell where he was in torment. That's his side called Hades. He looked what? Up. And he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Do you see that he died Never lost existence. 
never was not aware of everything that's going around him. In fact, he's in this place called Sheol in the bowels of the earth. And there's a place where Abraham and all the faithful are in this pleasant place. It's a compartment where they were cared for. It was pleasant. They were believers. They just hadn't been redeemed by the death of Christ yet. The other side is a place called Hades or hell. And that compartment is still there. And that's where all of the unsaved go. Okay, all of the unsaved die. And if they did not know Christ and they were not right with God, they go to Hades this place that is also called hell. Did you see what kind of place it is? Church, this is a solemn assembly. I'm telling you the truth and there's not many opportunities in life to hear this. They were in torment. He wanted a beggar with his filthy hand with sores and wounds on him. He wanted him to take a drop of water and put it on his tongue because he was in agony. And he said, it's amazing to me they could actually, there's a great chasm in between, Jesus said, you can't go one side or the other. He said, we can't do that because you can't, you, you, there, there is no purgatory church. There is no purgatory. If somebody told you that, let me be in the sternest terms, they're lying to you. Jesus said there's a great chasm in between and once you're in Hades, once you're in that holding cell, once you've died and breath has left your body, you can't leave Hades. Not even Jesus could pull one out of Hades. So you're praying in your purgatory and your money will not get you out of Hades. You're, there's a great chasm between, Jesus said, and they cannot move from one to the other. But he could actually see them over there. He could see Abraham and he could see the faithful. And how tormenting is that? I mean, that's torment in itself. But I can see the righteous at a faraway distance I can see that beggar and he's in a place, you know, that is pleasant and I'm here in torment. And when Jesus died, the Bible says that he actually descended into hell. How many know that? He he basically descended down to the place called Sheol. And it says he went over to that compartment where the faithful were. And he says he cleaned out all of those spirits and now they're in his presence in heaven. Now when a believer dies, we don't go to that compartment anymore because it's empty. He said he left captivity captive. He emptied out the entire holding cell of those who were faithful and waiting for a redeemer. Now we go into the presence of the Lord. We're escorted by angels. But when the unsaved died, make no mistake about it, they're escorted by angels into that holding cell in Hades. In fact, the Bible says by the end of the seven-year period, there will be an end to what's called the first resurrection. And the Bible says, blessed are those who are in the first resurrection because we're resurrected with glorified bodies. We're in paradise with Christ. In fact, do you know that the thief, because he had faith in Christ, Jesus said, tomorrow you'll be in paradise with me. That's awesome. It's so wonderful. Man, I just, man, I'm so happy. I'm so happy that God has saved me and so many that I love are going to be with me. But how many know it's heart-wrenching to know that there is a place where they're in torment and there's no way to get out? And we've only got a little bit of time in church. What are we doing? I mean, what are we doing? Playing games. You know, and I'm just being honest. You say, well, man, have a good speech here. I don't do speeches. I'm sorry. 
So Jesus empties that out. But what's going to happen to the other ones? We're in the presence of Christ. We're awaiting this resurrection. The Bible talks about what's called the second resurrection. The second resurrection. It says after a thousand year millennial reign on earth, where Jesus is going to set up his kingdom, rule and reign on earth. After that thousand years, it says that, in, in fact, if you read it in, in Revelation 20, I better read it. It's just too important not to. I know I'm probably going long, but boy, it's worth it. It says, and this is Revelation 20.11. This is the second resurrection. You don't want to be a part of this one. It says, Then I saw the great white throne and Him who is seated on it. The earth and sky fled from His presence. That's how scary it is. And there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done and recorded in the books. The sea gave up their dead. They were in it. The dead and Hades gave up their dead. There's that compartment I was telling you about. They were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone's name not found written in the book of life. Those who are in Hades, those who are in this compartment, they're also given a body for eternal destruction. And church, it just breaks my heart because these are all people that got what they wanted. They didn't want God. They rejected God. They they they'd seen the great offer of salvation and said, who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Can I tell you something, church? And this isn't popular to say in church. I fear God. I'm, I fear Him. You say, Chad, you shouldn't say that. He's the teddy bear in the sky. He's, he's just like a stuffed animal. You know, he's just... I love Him with all of my heart. I'm so thankful that I'm a son. I'm so thankful that He loves me. But I fear Him. Can you imagine eternity without God? Can you imagine missing that great escape? Can you imagine missing so great of a salvation in church? That is the problem with our world. Nobody's afraid of God. Man, we're afraid of snakes. We're afraid of insects. We're afraid of the dark. We're afraid of everything. we got a fear and a phobia of everything, but nobody is afraid of God. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill you. Be afraid of that one person that can send your soul to hell. And we just don't fear God at all. In church, we better start fearing God again. We have to fear God because the Bible says the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of a relationship. How many know that God has opened the door and says, I want to know you. I want to love you. I want to be your friend. I want to be your father. I want you to be in my family. I want to adopt you. You say, well, man, he's the teddy bear, right? But what happens when you reject the God of heaven? What happens when he opens the door and you say, I don't want you. I don't care about you. I'll do what I want. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you're displeased with it. I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. And church, I'm just telling you, 
If he could save a thief on the cross who's in his last breath, he can save everyone in this room, but we got to know the truth. There's a time coming where he will come. And like I said, if you're not right with God, and so let me give you the conclusion of the matter here. How can I be saved? It's very simple. This is called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Jesus, it's in this verse 18, 28, 18. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, can I tell you, it is your right to tell your pastor, get the stinking baptism tank out, I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to be baptized into Christ. I want to be known as a believer. I want to follow Christ with all of my heart. Yes, you're going to fail, but how many know you can't fail with Christ? You can't fail. You said, but my sins. And Jesus said, no, your sins have been forgiven. (laughs) Hallelujah. All we have to do is follow Christ. Be baptized, every one of you. Make disciples. Church, we're here to disciple you. We're here to baptize you. In fact, next, we're going to have a water baptism coming up. I already know of three people that are ready to be water baptized. If you never have, do you say, does the water save me? No, it doesn't. The Bible says it's not the washing away of the water or the filth of the flesh. It's the fact that you have a good conscience now toward God. And you said, he's the Lord of my life. He's died for all of my sins. And I'm going to follow him with all of my heart. And then you tell the world through water baptism. Does a wedding vow make you married? No, it tells the world that this is what I in my heart am doing. And so church, I highly recommend that you pray that prayer and then tell your pastor, get that tank out. I want to be water baptized. Just like the the Ethiopian that was sitting there and he said, is there any reason I can't be baptized now? No, 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 we'll... We'll do it. So I'm going to have a sign up. Anybody that, you know, you've never given your heart to the Lord and you say, man, I want to know. I don't want to die and not know the Lord. You know, we want to be faithful to you here at this church. You know, we want to be faithful to make sure you know the Lord. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Worship team. Is it all right to go 10 extra minutes? Now you guys are scared to say no. I'm really not that mean of a person. I'm sorry. I just want to be truthful with you. I really do. I know these have been some tough messages, but I'm just going through Thessalonians. I don't know any other way to do it. Hallelujah. How many are glad to hear these kind of messages? Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful, Lord. Lord, you made a path, one and only path, Lord, through you. You made it simple that we don't have to miss it. You made it simple to accomplish it through you, Lord. You made it easy for us, Lord. You did it all. Lord, we thank you, Lord, and we, um, Lord, we love you, Lord. You're, Lord, you're mighty, you're great, you're awesome. But Lord, you're also tender and loving. and Lord, there's nobody we love more than you, Lord. 
your spirit causes us to cry out, Daddy, Lord, to you. We know your tenderness, Lord. Lord, minister to those who are here, Lord God. In your name I pray. Hallelujah. Church, we're going to worship, and I just want you to always know, say, man, I don't know if I want to come up right now and pray at the altar, but this altar is open. If you want to get right with God, I'll be up here to pray with you. If you've got something you need prayer for, maybe you're sick or maybe you something in life, you need prayer over you. That's what these altars are for. But how many know I'm always available to pray with you? I can pray after church. I can pray privately. You know, when everybody's gone today, I can pray, pray during the week. But don't wait one day. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. We don't have tomorrow. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm going to leave the altars open. from Paul verse 13 he says but we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters he goes all this stuff that's going to happen at the end we ought always to thank God for you brothers and sisters loved by the Lord because God chose you as first fruits to be saved boy does that word mean a lot to be saved we know from what now don't we be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through those who believe in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did Paul say it perfectly? He said he saved you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through your belief in the truth. How many know when you begin to just say, it's just a simple prayer, confess with your mouth. When you confess to the Lord your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you. All you have to do is cry out like the thief, Lord, save me. And when you cry out, He said, because of your belief in the truth, you've been saved. And the Holy Spirit is now beginning to sanctify you. You say, am I perfect on day one? These people weren't perfect on day one. Trust me. But the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ covers every shortcoming, every failure, every weakness. And He's beginning to sanctify you in the truth because you believed Him. He saved you and He's sanctifying you. And we're going to share in His glory How many know that's good news compared to the alternative? Hallelujah. Church, let's trust Him. Don't wait another day. I understand being in a group of people and saying, you know what, I don't know. But find me and let's talk about it. Let's talk about your relationship with the Lord. Let's talk about whether you're right with the Lord. Let's get you on the right track. How many know that's what we're here for? We're here to show you the simple path to trusting the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, bless everybody here, Lord. Put your hand upon them. Lord, let your spirit speak to them, Lord. 
Fill them with your Holy Spirit. Do a mighty work in each life, Lord. Lord, make your word come alive, Lord. Bless them and keep them, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.